Hi, this is Rabbi Lauren Tuckman, and you're listening to Drinking and Drushing, Torah with a Twist, and Happy Disability Pride Month! Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. You know I'm always down for a really fun time to celebrate? Yeah, no, you're really good at celebrating. Right, I love birthdays. I love, you know, when it's Jewish Heritage Day at Yankee Stadium. I love being able to celebrate anniversaries. Happy 40th anniversary, mom and dad, that passed, uh, you know, a week ago. And I love the fact that July is Disability Pride Month. Why is that? Because we've had some really incredible Jewish leaders that have had disabilities in their lives. And really, not only do they not deny them, they embrace them. They've been a huge part of who they are. I mean, look, if you look at people like Marley Matlin, incredible actress who lost her hearing at 18 months old, she's been on, wait, what was that show she was on that's her favorite show of all time? The West Wing. The West Wing. And also, it's Huck Perlman, incredible, incredible violinist and conductor. I mean, he's played for Queen Elizabeth. He's played for presidents. And my favorite, he was on Sesame Street. And if anybody wants to watch that video, Google easy and hard. It's Hawk Perlman. It's an incredible video. You'll learn a lot. I have. I use it all the time. But I'm most excited because our guests today work with incredible communities and uplift their disabilities, uplift that accessibility should be for everybody in the community and on everybody in the community. Sounds awesome. Let's jump in. very, very exciting episode, not only because of the incredible guests that we're with today, but also because it is our 36th episode, our double high episode, Va'ev Hanan. We are in our second Parsha of our fifth book, Devarim. And realistically, I'm still getting really attached to this new telling of an old story and trying to see how I can connect what I'm learning into what we're doing in real life. Because is that even possible? Do things that happen in the Torah actually connect to real life? Unsure, but we'll find out. However, in order to help us find out, we've asked a couple of people to come along today. We're so, so excited to have as our featured guest, Rabbi Lauren Tuckman, who is a sought-after speaker, spiritual leader, and educator, ordained by the Jewish Theological Seminary in 2018. She is, as far as she is aware, the first blind woman in the world to enter the rabbinate. She provides consulting to individuals and organizations across the Jewish community on a variety of matters pertinent to disability access and inclusion. She's taught in numerous synagogues and other organizations across North America. She was named to the Jewish Week's 36 under 36 for her innovative leadership concerning inclusion of Jews with disabilities in all aspects of Jewish life. In 2017, she delivered an Eli talk entitled, We All Were at Sinai, The Transformative Power of Inclusive Torah. She's a participant in the Institute for Jewish Spirituality's Clergy Leadership Program, and in 2020, when all of us were, you know, in quarantine, she was honored by the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance. We are also so, so excited to welcome Rabbi Emily Aronson, who was just ordained in 2021, but is already making great strides, and we're so excited that she'll be continuing to hang out with us at HUC. Rabbi Tuckman, Rabbi Aronson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. We're so excited that you're here, and I would be remiss if I didn't remember, and sometimes I don't, but this time I did, to introduce my incredible co-host, rising fourth-year cantorial student, Gabe Snyder. What's up, Gabe? Hello! 
How's it going? It's all good. It's all good. I'm so excited to hear that. And our executive producer, HUC adjacent favorite, Edon Waldman. What's going on, Edon? Not much, just hanging out in a hot apartment. Well, hopefully things will cool down before they heat up more. I'm so, so excited to get started. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. It feels like I'm rereading a lot of the same stories over and over again. Yeah, no, that's pretty much all of Deuteronomy. But I thought we talked about that last week. Can we talk about it again this week? I don't know. The whole thing seems pretty redundant. And also, it says the same thing multiple times. So we might as well do the same. Oh, so it's okay to be a little redundant and repetitive? Yeah. Cool. But is there anything new? Mm, Maybe. Definitely new insights into old stories. Okay. So if I was listening for the first time, and this was my first ever episode, could you give me a quick rundown of what's involved? Well, we can try. Hey, remember how Moses hit that rock and then wasn't allowed to cross into the promised land? Well, Moses asks God to reconsider, but God is not in a particularly forgiving mood, so God says nope and don't ask again. In fact, go up this mountain and look at this place you're not allowed to enter. Ah! So then we get some laws, follow them carefully. Why? Well, you want other people to think you're smart, and following the commandments is a smart thing to do. Where do those commandments come from? That mountain that was on fire with dark, dense clouds, and you heard a voice, and then there were those tablets of commandments. Quick reminders, no graven images, don't worship the sun, God brought you out of Egypt. Moses blames the people for being banned from the land, which isn't really fair, but we'll ignore that. The people will enter the land and settle there, and generations that follow will still need to follow the laws. Again, no graven images, that's apparently important. Remember the covenant? God does, and as long as you keep it, God will too. But if you don't, death. God's pretty great, having created the heaven and the earth and spoken through fire and delivering the people from slavery with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and a heavy pour. That last one was a joke, but was it though? Moses then designates three cities east of the Jordan as cities of refuge, Bezer, Ramot, and Golan. Remember those laws that were on those tablets? Let's go over them again. 1. I am God. 2. Don't have other gods. Don't make graven images. 3. Don't make fun of my name. 4. Remember that Saturday exists and make it holy. 5. Do what your parents say. 6. Don't murder people. 7. Don't have sex with people you're not supposed to have sex with. 8. Don't steal stuff. 9. Don't lie about people. 10. Don't want other people's stuff. Glad we went over that because if you don't follow those laws, you're gonna die. Ever been to a synagogue? You might have heard people say Shema and Ve'ahavta. Where do those come from? Right here in Va'etchanan. God is one, love God, remember the laws, teach the laws, say the laws, put the laws on your hand, forehead, doorposts, and gates. One more time, only worship God, don't test God. Why do we worship God? Because God freed us from slavery in Egypt. Mighty hand, outstretched arm, heavy poor. By the way, that land you're about to go into has some other people in it. Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And they're all much stronger and more numerous than you. But don't worry, because God's got your back. But don't intermarry with them or really interact with them at all, because they'll turn you away from God. Smash their idols and cut down their sacred pillars. Remember, you're a people consecrated to God. Of all the peoples of the earth, you're the chosen ones. Congrats! It's not because you're the biggest, you're actually the smallest, but because God made a promise and God always keeps promises. So yeah, that's basically it. God is God and keeps the covenant and requires us to do the same, and that means following the law. And that's Parashat Ve'etchanan. That was incredible, Gabe. Do you think we should add some more to the Parsha just for fun? (laughs) 
Bobby Sackman, I am so excited that you're here with us today and that we're able to really learn from you and your insights and your brilliance. And so the first question I'm going to kick it off with is what insights and beliefs and values really drive your work and, and keep up those passions of yours that are influencing the world around you? Yeah, well, thank you, Amanda. It's truly an honor to be here. Uh, And I would say that there are a couple of guiding values that really influence my work in the world. One of them is the value of relationship. I feel very strongly that it's really the relationships that we have with one another and with our own tradition and with those around us that allow us to show up as our full self in whatever space we are in. And that community is truly built up from relationship and from the web of relationships that we all have. You know, I think often about the fact that when I was really getting into Judaism, a lot of that happened because I had an amazing crew of friends that really brought me in and really inspired me to just nurture my passion. And without that network of support and that network of mutuality, it would have been a much harder thing to do. And so that has guided me Um, For the last many years of the work that I've done, just the human interaction is so important. I would say that that's one value. And another value is I really believe very strongly in the idea of Shivim Panim LaTorah in 70 Faces of Torah. So in the Eli talk that we mentioned a bit earlier in the episode, I talk a lot about Shivim Panim LaTorah, 70 Faces of Torah, meaning 70 infinite interpretations of Torah. Because I really do believe that Torah is something that we can all connect to in one way or another. And there's no one way to connect to Torah. Because we know that there are infinite interpretations of Torah. And there are infinite approaches to Torah. And so part of the work is finding the way, the pathway into Torah that works for us. And in the way that it works for us. And also knowing that throughout our lifespan, that's going to change. I'm certainly not the same person I was five years ago, and I assume in five years I won't be the same person. And that's what relationship to Torah is. Relationship to Torah is not, here's this static thing over here. Relationship to Torah is saying, this is actually a living thing. This is a text and a tradition and a guidepost and all of those things that inform me and that interact with me in very different ways, depending on any number of circumstances what's going on in the world, what's going on inside my own soul, what's going on in my community. And all of those things affect how I relate to Torah at any given time. And I think that that's true for all of us who are in one way or another engaged with Torah. I think often that Judaism can be presented as here are all the to-dos and the not-to-dos. Of course, in this week's parasha, we've got a lot of those. But in fact, it's also really about what does it mean to be in relationship with this living Torah, this Torah Chaim, this Torah of life, and this life-giving tradition that also can be challenging, but that's part of the work, is that when the going gets rough, we have to wrestle, and that's who we are as B'nai Israel. We are God wrestlers, and so we don't necessarily avoid the hard things. We actually deeply wrestle with them, and it doesn't even mean that we're going to have satisfactory answers to any of our questions. What it means is that we entertain the question. So I would say that really those two things, Shavim Penim the Torah, and the importance of relationship are two of the values that really guide me on a very broad scale. You talk about this idea of being in relationship and, and being able to interpret, and I find it fascinating because in the book of Deuteronomy, I feel like we're really getting Moses' interpretation of what happened beforehand. 
And the relationships are pushed. They're really stretched to their limits in a way. God is saying, no, no, like, you're not going to go into Israel. Like, we're setting a, a, a strict boundary on this relationship and, and what role you play in it. And at the same time, Moses is kind of getting a little angsty slash angry slash frustrated at his Israelite companions that are going to potentially go into the promised land and saying, look, it's because of you that this is happening. And so I'm curious what, what happens when our interpretations and our relationships sometimes might clash. Ah. Uh. That's one of the challenges of Devarim, right? It's exactly what you just said. You know, what do we do when things are pushed to their absolute limit? I just, I don't think that there is one way to navigate that. And, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot as I was preparing for this episode. And right, Moshe has really had it in so many ways and is making that extremely clear over and over again. And I often want to know, you know, I'd want to ask, and of course, we'll never have the answer to this, but what's been going on internally for Moshe, right? Because so much of what we project in the world is a reflection of what's going on for us internally. That's something that I deeply believe to be true. And a lot of the ways in which we approach other people or judge their decisions, or in the case of our Parsha this week, Moshe is really having none of it with B'nai Yisrael in lots of different ways and reminds us of all the ways in which we didn't do what we were supposed to do. But I often wonder, okay, so how is that being refracted? And maybe that's also, it gets back to the question of sometimes leaders can't actually take us as far as we need to go. And in this case with Moshe, that very well may be part of what we're being told in this Parsha, right? That your reaction and interaction with other people might often mean that you're not the right person for the given role in a given context. And in terms of our own interpersonal relationships, you know, how many of us have had friendships fall apart, and not even because a conflict arose necessarily, but actually because we just fundamentally changed and we couldn't connect in that way anymore, or any number of other things. I'm thinking also of jobs. What happens when you realize that where you're working or what you're doing is really not aligned? And how do you keep those relationships afloat while also honoring, like, okay, I'm feeling particularly angsty about my workplace, and so maybe that is a sign to me of a shift, right? Like, I think a lot of us can relate to that, or if I'm feeling particularly angsty about some other passion I'm doing, maybe that's a sign that I need to move into a different space. And so I think that there are times when, when the interpretations and then when the relationships get really pushed, that's a really important sign that we can't ignore. You know, one of the things that strikes me about Torah, one of my favorite things about Torah, and I've talked about it a few times on the podcast, is that our heroes, our biggest characters, are flawed. That nobody in the entire text, including God, is perfect. That there's always something that could have been done better. There's always another layer to add. And I think Moses not being able to enter the promised land for whatever reason, whether it was the people's fault, whether it was his fault, whether it was because he called the people rebels or because he hit the rock or whatever it was, Moses' inability to enter the promised land 
his inability to wrap that story up with a neat little bow led to the next chapter, leads to the next book, leads to the next leader in our history. So I love this idea that you're talking about of relationships. And I'm wondering how those relationships exist not only between us at the same time, but how those relationships exist to those in the past and to those in the future. We hear in this Torah portion, this is a covenant for all time, for all generations. What does that mean? That is one of my favorite parts of this portion. The notion that we're told, as you said, that this is a covenant for all generations. And I also wanted to amplify, Gabe, what you said about your favorite part of Torah, which is also my favorite part of Torah, which is that nobody is perfect. And we don't claim that anybody is perfect. But honestly, you know, reading there are certain parts of it I'm just like, ay, ay, ay. And that's the point, right? That this is not something that's put on a pedestal, but actually it's something that we really are meant to get into the weeds with. In terms of what does it mean that these relationships are in the past, for the past and the future, I think that there's this beautiful idea of this chain of tradition, right, that we often talk about in Jewish circles, this notion of a chain of tradition that we're all a part of, that we were all at Sinai to receive Torah together that it is this covenant that is everlasting as one way to put that. But what it also means, and I think that this this is really something that has become very real for me in the COVID era. I don't think that I have ever felt more aware as I have in the last 16 months of the way in which I am influenced by what's going on in my own world when I approach Torah. I think that that's always something I thought about in, you know, very particular ways about particular partial. I could, you know, name off my greatest hits partial. Here are all the things, here are my favorite dress out that I give every year. But once COVID hit, I started to really realize, like, this is speaking to me in so many different ways that I could never have imagined, which I think connects directly to your question of Torah is going to speak to us in every generation. That's part of what it means for this to be a covenant for all generations which means that then we're going to add our own insight to the tradition every generation. And we are really blessed in this generation in particular that more and more people are learning Torah. And when I say learning Torah, I mean that in the broadest sense possible. More and more of us have had access to Torah in ways that we did not in the past. And one of the beauties of that is that we get to then hear all of these different voices that we weren't able to hear before. But also, by that same token, one of the things that I love the most about Torah study is that I get to be in relationship with texts that were written 2,000 years ago, and I get to do that in a living way. So I have a relationship with that text, and I feel like especially in our culture that is really focused on the here and now, that's really focused on this moment as the moment, the fact that we get to dive into the past and bring to bear commentaries that were written centuries ago in utterly different times and contexts, that can still have an influence on how we understand the text. I think that's a tremendous privilege. It's not always an easy thing. There's plenty that is different today, but we get to continue that chain. You talk about this idea of 70 faces of Torah and also of being in the moment, but not necessarily getting stuck in the moment, right? This ability to really move ourselves forward. And we have had the joy and the privilege of lifting up as many voices as possible, especially those who sometimes have commented that they need to read themselves into the story. 
that it's not always clear on its original face that they're a part of the story, but they found ways to read themselves in. And in honor of the fact that July is, is Disability Pride Month, and in honor of the fact that I want to make sure that we are continuing our goal of uplifting as many voices and stories as possible, I'm curious how the work that you're doing and how those who may not be able to read themselves into the story just yet might be able to read themselves into Ve'et Hanan. I love that question, and I want to take it in two different parts. The first piece is to address reading ourselves into the text, because this certainly has been a journey that I have been on for a very long time. When you read the text initially, it is very easy to say, well, where is a blind woman going to find her place in Torah? Doesn't seem immediately apparent. And that's where the idea in our Parsha of this is a covenant for all generations, that's where that really comes in. Because if I believe that that's actually true and that Torah was something that I received at Sinai, just like every other Jew, just like everybody else, um, every Jewish generation, past, present, future, all Jews, whoever are to be, then that means that I have to figure out there's a challenge to me, I think. And the challenge is, okay, how am I going to find myself in this text? And this gets back to the question or the theme around what it means to navigate a really beautifully complicated, multi-layered tradition. And I started out, when I was thinking about how to read myself in the text in general, I would find different people in the text, like, for example, our matriarch Leah, who the Torah tells us in the beginning of Genesis 29, has weak eyes, but we don't actually know what that means. And when I was in rabbinical school, it just jumped out at me as, oh my gosh, Leah had a visual impairment of some kind. Now, do I know that as an absolute truth? Of course, I don't know that as an absolute truth. But that's where we can start to lean into imaginative possibility. And if we want to find ourselves in the text, and we have the Torah telling us, Leah has weak eyes. There was a connective point for me of like, oh, huh. And then I could read the story of Leah and her experiences with her children and with Yaakov and feeling unloved. And I can read that and say, hi, what what's happening in that story? And what are the pieces that the commentaries that I'm reading may not be catching that I feel like are literally jumping off the text at me? And that, to me, feels really theologically important because I feel like that is one way that God, that Hashem, however we want to refer to the divine, is kind of nudging me to explore my own connection and my own imaginative possibility. And again, we're not talking about absolute truths here. We're talking about really engaging in a particular kind of relational technique with Torah. And so to bring it back to the Parsha, that's where we get the notion of the covenants being for all generations, because the covenant applies to every single one of us. And so that then gives us the ability to begin to find ourselves in Torah. And I also don't want to pretend that that's easy. This is something that I'm able to say because I have been in this for a very long time, right? If someone is starting out and there's an expectation of, oh, I've got to find myself in the text or I'm not doing it right. What I think really is a much healthier approach is to say, I really want to start dipping my feet into the waters of Torah and figuring out what's going on. What is really resonating with me? What's challenging me? What do I need to do some wrestling with? And the more and more we come back again and again and again to the text, 
the more we start to build that foundation and then we go beyond the foundation into building actually much more of that structure and that relationship. And that then allows us to come back to that anchor, especially when parts of our Torah can be really, really difficult. But that allows us, Gabe, as you were saying earlier, The beauty of Torah is we don't pretend that our ancestors are perfect. We acknowledge and lift up that they're human. And so that feels really part and parcel of what it means to see ourselves in Torah is to say, oh, they're just as human and just as complicated as I am. And that's part of the work. One of my favorite lines from this Torah portion comes in at that Ve'ahavta section that has made its way into our liturgy. And that's this idea that we're supposed to teach the commandments to our children, which goes back to this idea of this chain of tradition that you spoke of earlier. What sticks with me, though, and what hits me is that the word used to teach is not lilamed. It's not what we would generally think of as teaching. The text says, vishinantam livanecha. And that root, that shanan, has to do with piercing or with sharpening. And so, This idea of teaching is not only to tell people what's going on, but to really make it a part of them, to get it inside of them, almost with a violent bent to it. So I'm curious how we might see ourselves not only reading ourselves into the Torah, but reading the Torah into us, or more accurately, into our children, to pierce ourselves or to pierce others with that Torah. I think one of the most important things that anyone who wants to teach Torah, whether it's to your children, your students, anybody, is to really be very, very in touch with your own relationship with Torah and your own spiritual practice. And I know that might sound really cliche, but I I mean that very sincerely because the best teachers of Torah that I have ever had, the teachers of Torah that really pierced me with that Torah, to use that Shanan analogy, are people who have really had lives that have been very textured, that maybe have included adversity and a lot of struggle, and people who are deeply honest and integral with themselves and with others, because that is what I really believe Torah commands. You know, when we say Vahavta and you shall love, it's really hard to be like, and you shall love? How do you command an emotion? When we really allow ourselves to actually understand, like, what does it mean to, and you shall love, and you shall teach, we start to really embody those things, and they become part of who we are, but we can't do that if we aren't really embodying them. I think that it's fair to say that anybody can tell if a person is really not that sincere. And, you know, we find ourselves in, like, we're human beings who have very complicated experiences of the world, right? And how often is it that you find yourself in a situation where you're supposed to be teaching this thing, but you realize, oh, I don't necessarily know that I actually connect anymore, but you keep going. And the challenge there is that it's so easy for others to tell. And many of us can probably think about educators, whether they're Jewish or secular or both, who lost their passion, lost their love for what they do. And that has an effect on students and on children and on people in their sphere. And so I think that's something that we as Jewish educators in one way or another, and really anybody, whether you're a Jewish educator or not, just a person in the world, really taking more time for personal contemplation and centering is really crucially important, I think, because that then allows us to be grounded in who we are 
which is always a changing thing. But then it allows us to move forward and to embody the Torah that we want to bring into the world. I'm so excited to pass off the mic to Rabbi Emily Aronson. But before we do, before we wrap up this segment of the show, Rabbi, if there were one message, one call to action, one thing that you wanted listeners to walk away with after they heard this episode, what would that thing be? Please take the time. If you are in a situation where you're feeling disconnected, you're feeling reactive, we're in a very reactive-oriented culture right now that doesn't reward nuance and it doesn't reward complex thinking, reach out. Don't respond automatically. Reach out to the person. Really engage them. Panim al panim in whatever way you can because we're all part of this larger project of Torah. We're all part of trying to bring a life-giving Torah into the world. And our words really, really do matter. And how we think about people and treat people, as we know from this week's parasha, in terms of thinking about Moshe's interpretations of different events that have been going on and his reactions to that, just pause Don't do anything immediately. And if it's a situation that needs to have a conversation, reach out in the right moment. We are so prone to react. It's so important, as Viktor Frankl says, that there's always a choice between the stimulus and the response. So let's really lean into our ability to make that choice. nothing like when we are able to spend time with two extraordinary leaders making a real difference in the world and especially our world the way that we bring Judaism to the forefront and the way that we can include everyone therein and so we were so stoked so honored so excited to bring in Rabbi Emily Aronson as our Q&A guest this week. Rabbi Emily Aronson was ordained from HECJR in May 2021. During her time at HEC, she served as the rabbinic intern at synagogues and pastoral care settings and at Israel organizations. Emily's rabbinic thesis is titled, From Curing to Crying, Determining God's Role in Healing for Those with Chronic Illness. She's the co-founder of Wondrously Doesn't, a space for the Jewish body, which explores the intersection of Jewish ritual and invisible illness. She graduated from the joint program at Columbia University and the Jewish Theological Seminary with a BA in Ethnicity and Race Studies and a BA in Jewish Thought. This year, Emily is serving not only as the Interim Dean of Students for the HGC New York campus, we're very lucky, she is also the Reform Rabbi at the Bronfman Center for Jewish Student Life at NYU, they are also very lucky. Rabbi Emily Aronson, I am so excited to pass you the mic. Thanks so much. So, Lauren, you were talking earlier about the importance of engaging with Torah as a living document and really grappling with the parts of Torah that are challenging. And I'm curious about how you grapple with difficult theology around disability, because there are so many times when disability or illness are used as punishment for sin, where God inflicts bodily harm or causes illness in reaction to sin. So I'm wondering how you encounter those texts What questions do you ask of those texts and how do you interpret them for us today? Thank you, Emily. That is such an important question. And I feel like I could talk on it for an hour. So I'm going to try to be brief. Part of it is that it's very hard. First, I think it's really important to just acknowledge it's hard. It's really hard when you encounter those things. And 
There are, as you said, there are many incidences in which there is very challenging theology presented to us in the Torah. So there are a couple of different ways that I choose to approach this. One of the ways that I think about this is the Torah is actually, if we kind of turn it on its head a little bit, right? Torah is actually asking us to look at ourselves much more critically. I am sure that many in the disability and chronic illness communities can certainly resonate with the idea that we've come a long way. And of course, it is Disability Pride Month. We've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. And some of these ideas about disability and sin and where that comes from is still very present in our world. And so Torah, when we really deeply grapple with Torah, we have to grapple with the ways in which ableism is so very present. And how do we address and seek to dismantle ableism, seek to create a community in which all bodies, all beings, all people can thrive and can really reach their full potential? So when we grapple with those really difficult passages, we have to then ask ourselves the question of, what do I do? This text is here. This is a text that is deeply meaningful. And it is in my hands now, as it says later in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, it's not in heaven, it's in our hands to interpret it. That's what it means for this to be a living document. It's one of the challenges, one of the things that I find most frustrating, uh, if I can be quite candid, is the tendency when we find something in Torah that really is hard for us as modern readers. And it's really easy to then say, oh, well, thank goodness we don't live in that world anymore. And that doesn't actually do anything. All it does is it, it takes away our own responsibility for the world that we've created. And it says, oh, well, we are clearly better than the Torah, as if this Torah is, uh, the Torah is some archaic, ancient thing over there. There's such an ingrained assumption that, well, we've gone beyond the Torah's time. And for sure, there are things that are very different today. I am very grateful that there are things that are very different today. But also, I think we don't do ourselves any favors when we aren't really real about the ways in which so much of how we understand illness and how we understand disability is deeply problematic. And the Torah gives us a mirror. The Torah says, this is here. Look into your own soul. Look into your own culture. Is that still here with you? And if it is, and it, I believe indeed it actually is, these ideas about disability, then how do we work with them to dismantle them in a way that is really sustainable? And I think particularly in the COVID era, it's really important for us to be very honest about that and to not dismiss as inherently archaic, but to really take the text and say, what is the Torah teaching me in this moment? Because everything is a teacher, including the things we really don't like. I love that idea of the Torah as a mirror, that we can see ourselves in Torah, and Torah is simultaneously reflected in us. You've touched on this a little bit about how uh, accessibility has changed during COVID. I'm curious about how accessibility has changed and what it is that we need to do to move forward to either build on that momentum or to make further changes so that we continue to make Torah and Jewish life accessible so accessibility issues during COVID have been very stark and different parts of the disability community. I experienced that in very different ways. So I'm going to focus mostly on the Jewish piece, although I feel like there's a lot that we can work with. So as things pivoted to virtual, 
out of necessity because of the pandemic. A lot of folks, and I consider myself in this category, and I can only speak from that experience, but a lot of us felt a particular way in which the gates had been thrown open. Things were much more accessible than they had been before. You could go online to so many different shiurim, so so many different classes, go to different services, engage with Jewish content in all of these incredible ways that may not have been available to you pre-pandemic for any number of accessibility reasons, whether it's transportation, whether it's simply geographic location. And that's wonderful. And so as we are blessedly moving back to being more in person, I am very keenly aware of the ways in which sometimes We do things from an accessibility perspective because it isn't needed in the moment and the majority needs it. But you always are going to have people with disabilities in every community who are going to really deeply benefit from things remaining virtual. And so I want us to be very careful that as we move back to in-person, that we don't then turn off all of the online offerings. Maybe they shift because hybrid is certainly very hard. I am not in no way pretending that hybrid is easy, but maybe we shift, maybe we put out surveys and ask what kind of things are you needing in this moment? Because one of the challenges that a lot of disability communities name is that things are much more accessibly gotten when the majority culture needs them. So when COVID forced us all online, everything then suddenly became online. Whereas before that, people with disabilities and chronic illness who required or wanted things to be more accessible to them would have to really struggle for that. So let's just keep that in mind as we're moving forward, that we don't revert back to everything being as it had been before March of 2020, but we actually take the pandemic lessons that we've learned as we move into this next chapter. In the past year or so, there have been a lot of social change movements, and the idea of being an ally has become really valued in our society. But it's so difficult to understand what it means to be a true ally, who gets to identify who is an ally, and what that really looks like from a perspective of sincerity. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what it takes to be an effective ally, perhaps in general, but specifically, what does the disability community need from allies? I love that question, and I particularly love your emphasis on it's difficult to do that sincerely, because I think one of the biggest challenges when we think about allyship in our cultural context is that it becomes almost a posture rather than an action. So when I think about, well, I'm an ally to X, Y, and Z community, okay, I can state that, but what do my actions look like? And this is not about performing. It's not about points, it's about really being a mensch. At the end of the day, this is about being a decent human being, and and it's genuinely about wanting to live in a world where all beings can thrive, and particularly in this context where all people can thrive. So in terms of disability, and this is where things get very, I think these things get very multi-layered, because the answer is going to be very different based on whichever part of the disability community you're talking about. So for example, I had a conversation a few months ago with someone who works with folks with spinal cord injury, and a lot of those folks were losing their home care because of COVID. A lot of folks had to then move into each other's homes, literally because it was the only way they were going to get the home care that they needed. And we know the care crisis in the United States is a tremendous, tremendous issue. 
So thinking about where is our money going? Are we supporting efforts that allow folks to get the care that they need in their home, that allow folks to have that freedom, that self-determination to stay in their own environment so they don't end up in a space they don't want to be in? Or thinking about how can I lend my support to initiatives to create more pedestrian-friendly spaces? I think about this a lot as a blind person because people are not yet necessarily feeling up to taking public transportation, feeling up to using rideshare. Like people have all different kinds of comfort level. And how do we make a pedestrian world that is a little bit easier for those of us who are blind to navigate? That feels like a really important issue. So advocating on that, organizing folks around those things, and really just being in genuine relationship with people and raising these issues. Because unfortunately, often when disability is covered in the media at all, it's covered in a very sensationalist kind of arm's length way. You're not seeing the article about how do we properly support people with disabilities so that they can get their basic needs met, so that they can thrive, so that they can be employed, that they can have a full life. Oh, it's such and such a person has a disability and they did this amazing thing. And let's move away from that and let's really work on organizing ourselves so that we get out there so that our issues become part of the conversation because we are not there yet. And that is something that allies can do is really help organize people who are like you, who care about the issues that you care about, to really be in relationship with us so that we can then be part of the larger justice conversation. While we do read the Ten Commandments in Va'etranan, there are actually a lot more commandments. We learn in Talmud, in Tractate Barachot, that Jews are as full of mitzvot as pomegranates are full of seeds. Pomegranates, and possibly to a greater extent, pomegranate seeds, represent the commandments. Now, what does that have to do with Midrashic mixology? I'll tell you. Rabbi, you requested a fruity vodka-based cocktail. Well, I heard you, Shamati. So please hear me when I introduce this week's cocktail, the Shamartini. The rim of the glass is the gateway to your drink, so place some flavor on that proverbial doorpost in the form of a sugared rim. Wet the rim of a martini glass with a lime wedge and dip into sugar to coat. In a cocktail shaker, combine two ounces of vodka, a half ounce of orange liqueur, a quarter ounce of lime juice, and one ounce of pomegranate juice. Shake with ice until the shaker gets frosty, and pour into your prepared martini glass. For a non-alcoholic version, replace the vodka and orange liqueur with two and a half ounces of orange seltzer. Just stir, don't shake. Thou shalt not shake carbonated liquids. For either version, drop in 10 pomegranate seeds, you might have some extra from last week's summery sunrise, for the Ten Commandments, and float a lime wheel on top for the oneness of God above all else. Ve'ahavta, and you shall love this drink. L'chaim. L'chaim, l'chaim, l'chaim. L'chaim, I am ready for one of those. So good. Very excited to make one of those. Well, I heard that, and I loved it, and I'm really excited about it, whether you command me to be or not. But, you know, also sometimes it's nice to just voluntarily love something. I'm not sure if I love the fact that we're already at thank yous and closing cues. This episode seemed to just fly by. 
I'm really excited to hear the answers, but I'm a little sad that we're getting towards the end. You know, like the book of Deuteronomy. Lauren, Emily, Gabe, Idan, and Vayat Hanan, we are commanded to listen and or hear with the Shema, one of the most famous prayers in our liturgy. Shema Yisrael, hear O Israel. But what happens when one can't necessarily follow the commandment? In honor of Vaedchanan and Disability Pride Month, what mitzvah must do slash not do would you alter in order to make it accessible to all who would want to partake? Lauren, we'll start with you. And I'm going to bring forward one of my favorite mitzvot, tzitzit. Because what does it say in numbers about tzitzit? Why do we have them on the four corners of our garments so that we shall see them and remember the mitzvot? Well, what happens if you can't see them? I get this question a lot. And I would invite us to have a much broader idea of tzitzit and what it means to see or interact with them. Because certainly when I am wearing tzitzit, I am very aware that I'm wearing tzitzit because of the feel of them, because I know that they're on my body. And there's something beautiful about that embodied mitzvah, especially for Disability Pride Month, because so many of us have been told that there's something wrong with how we are physically in the world. And tzitzit remind us that we're part of something greater and that we remember all of the mitzvot and that we have this relationship with God. And whether we physically see them or not, we are interacting and connecting to that mitzvah. The feel of it, the the sense of it, the smell of it, the reality of binding yourself. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's something that you 100% have to see to be a part of it. Rabbi Emily Aronson, what's on your mind? So I'm thinking about the ritual of fasting. I think usually we think about fasting on Yom Kippur as a really important component of self-denial and reminding us of the holiness of the day. And the reality is that there are a lot of us who cannot fast for any number of reasons. I think we need to make this more of a conversation. I think we often greet each other on Yom Kippur with some call, have an easy fast, but I'm a rabbi who does not fast. I have to eat in order to stay upright and in order to make it through the day. And that doesn't mean that the day is any less holy. It does not mean that I am not observing the holiday. And I think this needs to be part of our conversation. We need to have food ready and available to people who need it throughout the day in our communities. And we need to be sensitive to the reasons why people may not fast and to bring that into the conversation so that somebody doesn't feel alienated on what's supposed to be the holiest day of the year, that they're not thinking about, well, I don't fit in because of the needs of my body. And really, we should celebrate the needs of our bodies in all of their different ways and bring those into the holiness of the day. I really appreciate you bringing that up, especially because I think people are surprised sometimes to hear that there are, in fact, clergy members that do not fast on Yom Kippur and that they find meaningful ways to engage, especially because it's even in our, I don't know, liturgy and Torah and Haftar readings that this might not be the fast that we're looking for, that it's really the actions that count, even sometimes more than the lack of actions or the lack of something. It's our abundance of energy and generosity and gratitude. So I have an abundance of generosity, gratitude, and just appreciation for your words here today. Gabe, what mitzvah must do, must not do, would you alter so that everyone could participate? You know, with the focus on Shema and as an aspiring cantor, as that clergy member who's particularly focused on the auditory aspects of Jewish ritual, there's a lot 
of Meat's vote that have to do with hearing. And obviously there are a few issues with that from an accessibility standpoint, but one of the things that I never even considered until somebody pointed it out to me is the mitzvah to hear the shofar blast. It wasn't pointed out with the intention of saying there are some people who can't hear it, but rather there are some people for whom it's incredibly uncomfortable to hear a loud blast, where for whatever reason, it causes too much discomfort to hear the shofar blast or to sit in on a Megillah reading, which we are also commanded to hear, and to hear those noisemakers going. And so one thing that an educator did that I saw at my home synagogue at Temple Beth Elohim in Wellesley, um, the educator's name is Devin Barker, just to Bisham Omro, was he created a visual shofar blast. And he did that by basically silently making all of these ping pong balls explode everywhere. And the idea was, this is what a shofar blast, if you could see a shofar blast, that's what it would look like. And it allowed kids and students who would not be able to handle the sound of the shofar to experience it in another way. Gib, I love this idea of a visual take on what might be really excessively over loud, especially for someone like me who tends to get a little overwhelmed by auditory stimulation. I also, just during this conversation, decided that I was going to do a little bit of research, which is interesting. So I went to Chabad.org, which is a great, great resource. And one of the questions said, how many of the Torah's commandments still apply? And it says, of the 248 positive commandments, only 126 are currently applicable. And of the 365 negative commands, only 243 are still applicable. So, wait a minute. Of the 613, only 369 meets vote are still able to be, like, played with in a certain way. Okay, well, if that's the case, then I think that I am torn. I'm not entirely sure exactly a mitzvah particularly that I would change. But I think that I would encourage people that the kavanah behind the keva, meaning the intention behind the commandment, is the thing that really matters the most. And in that way, any commandment could be altered in a way so that you could participate fully and wholeheartedly. Because if the commandment is to love God with all your heart, then as long as your heart is in it, it seems like it's a go. If the commandment is ve'ahavta, to love with all of your heart, then if you're going into it wholeheartedly, it seems like you're really making it work. If the commandment is hear, but you can't hear, or you might not hear in the way that it's meant, you may invite a friend, like, I don't know, cantorial student Jenna Mark, to sign the Shema for those people that want to learn. If the commandment is to see, then maybe you're doing an internal look something that really allows you to focus on the feel or what it might look like or be like for you. And so, yeah, okay, maybe I'm cheating that I didn't just go for one, but I am thinking a lot these days about how our intention really shapes the law. This idea of lifni mishurat hadin, the spirit behind the law rather than just the letter of the law. With that, we head to Idan. So kind of piggybacking a little bit of what you said, Amanda, I was thinking about how, as someone who grew up somewhere between conservative and, and orthodox observance-wise, I've now found myself leaning way closer to the reform end of things than orthodox. What I think that is to say is that all commandments, I think, are really open to interpretation as long as it's something that, as you said, you put your whole heart into. It's something that is really important to you and you are trying to make happen. 
So I'm going to add one more kind of bigger picture element of this, which is that in the Mishnah, the rabbis develop this kind of system of exemption, that there are certain categories of disability that you're simply exempt from certain commandments. So for example, uh, if somebody can't walk, they are exempt from their obligation to go on pilgrimage. And I think this is the wrong framework and that it places all of the responsibility on an individual. And it means that if somebody's exempt, then they're excluded. And instead, if we flip this, the responsibility becomes on society to support an individual in the way that's appropriate for them. I think we see this in uh, the four questions on Passover is that we need to we need to meet people where they are and work together as a community in order to make sure that everyone has access. So instead of saying, oh, you don't have to go on the pilgrimage, we say, how can we help you go on the pilgrimage? And we change our society and we change our systems and organizations so that everybody can participate and so that nobody is excluded by way of exemption, but that we are affirming and accepting through accessibility. I think that's a really important take on the conversation. And I know that people are going to want to continue this conversation as we move forward, especially because we're running out of time in this week's episode. Rabbi Tuckman, if people want to be in touch with you, how can they find or follow you? The best way to do that is to go to my website, www.rabbituckman.com. And I'll spell that really quickly. Rabbi, R-A-B-B-I, Tuckman, T-U-C-H-M-A-N dot com. Incredible. And Rabbi Emily Aronson, if people want to be in touch with you, how can they be in touch with you? Absolutely. So you can find me at my website, emilyaronson.com, E-M-I-L-Y-A-R-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Amazing. Rabbis, any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes before we end this episode? Thanks so much for having us. And thank you, Lauren, for teaching us and being in conversation. Yes, thank you so much for having us. And it was just such an honor to be with all of you. The honor, the pleasure, the privilege is ours, but we're happy to share it with all of you. Thank you so much to Rabbi Lauren Tuckman for her wisdom, her humor, her candor. Thank you to Emily Aronson for always reminding us that it's not just on one of us to make a change, it's on the entire community, and we are so excited that you'll be working with our community this year to ensure that that keeps happening. Thank you to co-host Gabe Snyder, who killed it with the jokes this week, and especially with the Shamartini. I heard it, I loved it. And thank you, as always, to our executive producer, Edon Valbin, making sure that our sound is crisp, is clear. And of course, we wouldn't be able to do it without our editor, Mie, for this week. Thanks, Mie, for all you do. You know, I've been sitting with something through this episode, and originally, when Rabbi Lauren Tuckman was talking, she spoke about jobs and the ability of, if you're not the right person for a job, maybe it's time for you to stand back. But what happens when somebody else makes that decision for you, that you don't agree that you're not the person for the job, but somebody says, you can't do this? Right. Is it on you to prove that you can, or... Are they doing something wrong? And how do you combat that if it's not on you? Well, according to Rabbi Aronson, everything's on everybody. Really, it's our community's obligation and also kind of an honor to make sure that everybody's included, that everything's accessible, that people are able to participate fully, wholeheartedly as much as they want to. 
You know, I loved the question you asked in thank yous and closing cues. That question of what mitzvah, what commandment might you change or alter to open it up to more people? And it strikes me as interesting that next week in Parashat Akev, we'll do just that. Wow, Gabe, spoiler alert much? Sorry. No, but really, there is something really wonderful about knowing that these stories are going to continue. I mean, realistically, it just seems like this is never going to end. That's kind of the beauty of Torah. We just keep moving on. All right. Well, I'm excited to hear about next week's portion, next week's stories, next week's summaries, and next week's drinks. I'm pretty sure it's going to be quite appetizing, if you ask me. Guess we'll find out. L'chaim. L'chaim. I'm Rabbi Emily Aronson. You're listening to Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist. Thanks for allowing me my podcast debut.